So uh, my wife and I had some of our grandsons at the Cowtown Rodeo last night. Any Cowtown fans here? All six of you. Wow. I rode a bull and I got this as a souvenir. Just kidding. I, I, you, there's no amount of money in the world will put me on one of, top of one of those things. I did figure out, though, last night a new definition for eternity. You know, we always, eternity is when we go home to glory and we live forever with the Lord and uh, as well as the wrath of God poured out on those uh, rebel against him for all eternity. But last night I realized the new definition of eternity, it's eight seconds on top of a 2,000-pound bull. I don't have, I, I just don't understand why people would do that on purpose, you know, voluntarily. Um, it's one thing if somebody has a gun to your head, but it was, uh, it was amazing. It was a fun night, though. Um, Luke, you, maybe you can explain it to me someday why people do that. We're back in the book, speaking of Luke, we're back in the book of Luke today uh, after a several months hiatus, a series we started a number of years ago, actually, called The Doctor's Cure. And if you wouldn't mind turning to Luke chapter 15 in your Bibles, I encourage you um, to bring a Bible. I know it's um, these days it's easy just to bring your smartphone and you guys aren't second class Christians if you do that. But what I'm interested in is that your Bible becomes a tool for you and not just something to open when you're here on a Sunday morning. That that you can, you say, oh, I remember reading that a couple of months ago. And, you know, in my Bible, when I open my, it up and I start thumbing through, even if I forget where it's at, I, I have stuff highlighted. And after a while, I start to be grabbed. I realize where that's at. I remember where that's at. So if you can highlight things, underline things, write notes in the margins, I think those are, some of those things anyway, are things you can't really do too well on a smartphone. So love to have you get a, a tangible Bible that's, Uh, in your hands and becomes this tool for worship for you and for growing in Christ. And um, hopefully that will be beneficial. I had uh, one man that had used a smartphone for another year, a number of years. He went back and said, I just, it's just not the same and reverted to the, to the print piece. Uh, By the way, I know some of you are new here at Keystone. Uh, We use the, I use, I should say the new living translation here on Sunday morning when I teach, and uh, let me just give you a brief explanation of why that is. Uh, we have plenty of people here who use the ESV, NASB, the NIV Bible on a Sunday morning, that's fine. But uh, a number of years ago, I've been preaching out of the ESV, and I personally think that's probably the best translation that's available today um, in terms of literal, uh, really close to the original language in its rendering. but. I I found many times when I was studying it that I would struggle to understand what it meant. And I've got two theological degrees, and I'm thinking, if that's the case, how how must it be for people who uh, don't have that? And uh, switched to the NLT. wasn't a great translation when it came out in 1996, but they listened to the criticisms, and in 2004 did a major rendition uh, of it that uh, addressed a lot of the criticisms and problems that it had did another minor revision in 2007, and then again in 2015. Not a perfect translation, but here's the deal. It's very readable. It's very accessible. Um, it, it, it talks very similar to the way you talk in your everyday living without being cliched. And for me, I don't care how accurate, how literal your Bible translation is. If you don't read it, it's not a good translation. And so my purpose and hope is that the, using the NLT and preaching, uh, it drives you into your Bible more and more and more. So, again, you can use what you want, but uh, that's, why we, that's why we use that here for our Sunday mornings. Four years ago, there was a tour group uh, touring the island of Iceland, and they stopped at a well-known uh, scenic spot that is part volcano and part canyon. It's called Eltjunk. Say that with me, Eltjunk. Say it three times really fast. No, I'm just kidding. And this one woman got off the bus and, and uh, apparently they'd been on the bus for a while and she told someone else, uh, she wasn't traveling with any friends, she said, I'm gonna go over here and change clothes and freshen up. Well, she must have done such a good job that by the time she came back, her friend didn't recognize her, or not friend, but this person she was traveling with. 
And she went eventually and told the tour guide, hey, somebody's missing. She didn't know her name, but, but somebody's missing. She, she went away a little while ago, and she's never come back. And this woman, uh, so the tour guide gets up and says, hey, can I have your attention? We have someone in the tour that's missing. We need to go out and start looking for her. And so this woman who's being searched for heard that. And didn't recognize her description. No, that's not nice. She wasn't blonde. Yeah, that's right. I'm, I'm defending you. For the next 10 hours, 50 people in this tour group looked for this woman, including the woman. They're in cars, uh, they're walking. They had contacted a nearby Coast Guard station, which was getting ready to send out a helicopter when somebody finally put the pieces together. Oh, no, she's here. Now, you know, it's a funny, funny story, and it has a happy ending, but not all searches come to that conclusion. Back in 2004, there was a young man, 22 years old, Nicholas Royer from Montreal, Canada, who he and his buddy had planned this uh, for a couple of years. They graduated from college, and they're, they're, going, they're planning to go to Peru to hike the Andes Mountains. Uh, they're, they're climbers, and, and, but they're also uh, guys with sensitive hearts, and so they're going to spend six months there. They're going to do some service work in the very poor villages uh, high in the Andes. One night, they'd been there for several weeks. One night, Nicholas went out for a walk, told his friend, you know, he's going to go down this trail for a ways and just kind of take in some of the scenery. And hour went by, two hours went by, several more hours went by. Didn't come back. His friend went out looking for him, couldn't find him, realized there's a problem, walked 12 hours to find help. The Peruvian government began to help as well as the local people. And by a week's end, there were over 100 people searching for Nicholas and they couldn't find him. Peruvian government decided it was too dangerous to continue the search. They called it off, assuming that Nicholas was dead. Nicholas' father couldn't go that route, though, and he set out a plea for help, volunteers to go to Peru and look for his son. Six volunteers stepped forward. Two of them experienced climbers. They went to Peru and spent the next week combing the Andes, looking in the villages. They on foot sometimes, on horseback. They were down in the canyons uh, of the valleys. They were up in the heights of the mountain, the 14,000 feet. And finally, after over a week, with winter coming in, icy wind whipping across the mountains, snow, sleet, rain, Christian Royer decided it wasn't safe. It wasn't worth the risk anymore. And after $200,000, he couldn't afford anymore, and he realized his son was probably dead. It's two and a half weeks now. Now, the difference between the two stories is, one, there was a happy ending. The other, there was a sad ending. But they both had something in common, and that is that somebody cared enough to look for them. What if you were lost? What if you were high on a mountain or deep in a canyon? What if you were being dragged down a river and nobody cared enough to come and look for you? Luke chapter 15, first four verses. This book is, this chapter is a story of three lost things. And we're going to look at um, one, one each Sunday. Today's story, we're only going to look at part of it because we'll link part, the rest of it with next week's story. We're going to talk about search party today and birthday party next week, and then the following week, talk about the offended party. Verse 1, Luke 15, tax collectors and other notorious sinners often came to listen to Jesus teach. This made the Pharisees and the teachers of religious law complain that he was associating with such sinful people, even eating with them. And so Jesus told them this story. If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them gets lost, what will he do? 
Will he leave the 99 others in the wilderness and go in search for the one that is lost until he finds it? Father, I'm so glad, glad that you mounted a rescue effort on my behalf. And there are many here who could echo the same prayer of gratitude. And yet when we come to you on a morning like this, we, we raise the fame of your name and we proclaim your glory and your majesty and we worship you for who you are, being the one who flung the galaxies into space, who fashioned the planets and set them in orbits around the sun, and who took at least one of them and populated it. You made a man from dirt and then a woman from one of his ribs. You, you created a, a planet that would be the dream of fantasy writers. Perfect environment. And yet they, along with we, have rebelled against you. And we are in our essence marked solely by the fact that we are rebels against you. Sinners, rightfully in your crosshairs. And despite that, your approach to our rebellion was to send your son. And instead of killing us, instead of torturing us, instead of pouring out judgment on us, you poured it out all on him. And instead of requiring us to die, you required him to die. We're so grateful. Recapture in our hearts, Lord, the wonder of that. Move that from the list of things that kind of make us yawn into the list of things that make us gasp. Renew wonder and praise and worship in our minds. And this morning, as the enemy tries his best to make us be careless and thoughtless and unaffected by your word, instead, may the Holy Spirit run rampant through our hearts for your glory, our good, and the good of the world. In Jesus' name, amen. So in the first couple of verses here, we... We see when Jesus is here on earth that there is an inclination that people have searching for God. Now, they may not have known it. Most people did not get for a very long time, and even then only his disciples, that Jesus was the Son of God. But they're searching for God. And so they see Jesus as, at the very least, as some sort of link, a, a connector between themselves and God. And so the text says tax collectors and other notorious sinners often come to listen to Jesus teach. The original text says that people like this are drawing near to Jesus. There's, there's an, he's magnetic to them. They're, they can't stay away. And they're not coming to the temple to hear him. If he's out in the courts, they're probably not there. If he's teaching in the synagogues, they're probably not, probably not going there. No, they're, they're finding Jesus and, and chasing after him on the beach or in the town square or at dinner parties. The Bible says about a little tax collector. And you have to understand, a tax collector is like if it, maybe for you it would be a pedophile. The worst person that you can imagine for the Jewish people in the first century, it was it was a tax collector. Because after all, the tax collector was one of them. It was a Jewish man who had gotten in bed with the Romans. He's not only cooperating with their great enemy, but he's using that great enemy to fleece them. What I mean by that is a tax collector would, would bid to be a tax collector. You got the job because you told Rome that you would bring in more money than all the other bidders thought that they could 
And so somebody might say, look, I, if you give me this tax post, uh, I'll bring in $2,000 this year. Somebody else said, I'll bring in $3,000. Somebody else said, I'll bring in eight. Rome say, you get the job. And so you would, you would have to make sure that you got $8,000 to give to Rome, but whatever else you got from people could get from them, that you got to keep. And so these guys would gouge their own people. And so a, a word for a tax collector in a, in a good Jewish mind would be traitor and thief. Tax collectors and other notorious sinners. So you imagine if in our context it might be pedophiles or rapists or murderers or whatever you think is the worst. These folks were trying, they were drawn to Jesus, trying, trying to get to Jesus. But there were people all around Jesus who thought, well, they should make sure that the wrong kind of people or the inconsequential people don't get to Jesus. They saw themselves as self-appointed gatekeepers. And sometimes it was the disciples themselves. And so when the parents brought their little children to bless the children, the disciples said, shoo, go away. Go away. They Jesus is, he has more important things to do than mess around with children. Sometimes it was a, a woman just who was annoying or maybe because she had a wrong uh, ethnic mark. And so one time a woman who was a Canaanite woman came to Jesus about a daughter of hers that was demonized and, and Jesus didn't really respond to her right away and so she kept badgering them and begging him Finally, the disciples said, send her away. This woman is a bother. And you remember there was a call girl that came to, to see Jesus. It's very important. She got to see him. She found out he's a particular dinner party. And so she's showing up with her favorite perfume and very expensive and pouring it on Jesus. And Zacchaeus trying to get to see Jesus, but he's too short and he goes up in a tree because he, it's really important that he sees Jesus, not just as a celebrity, but he's hoping maybe Jesus can help connect him with God. All these different kinds of people, the blind man crying out, son of David, have mercy on us. Shh. These gatekeepers trying to keep him away. The call girl, Simon the Pharisee says, do you, he's thinking in his mind, Jesus, do you know who this is is touching you? You shouldn't have anything to do with her if you really were a prophet. The worst of the worst were drawn to Jesus, but the best of the best tried to keep all of these people away from him. And Jesus, by virtue of who he talked with and who he ministered to and who he tended to spend most time with, communicated to the people who thought Jesus was come, had come to make sure that the, the good people got connected to God, had their impressions upended remember Jesus told the people uh, the Pharisees and the, the teachers of the law the really really good people he said look I didn't come to, to I didn't come for people who don't think they need a doctor I came for the people that know they're sick and how many times is it that we in the church are like I don't need any more help I'm saved I've crossed the line I don't, re I don't really need any, anything from God. I, my checkbook is, you know, my bank account is thick enough. I've got enough resources financially. If I have a physical problem, you know, I, I, I've got doctors to go to. By the way, you know, some of you saw last week I had two of these on. I, three of you prayed for me last Sunday. This has been going on for anywhere from four to eight weeks. Monday afternoon. Last Monday afternoon, this started to get better. Inside of 24 hours, I was 75% improved. Amen. But isn't it true? We have a tough time admitting our own need. And when we don't admit our own need, we don't need Jesus. If there are five other means by which we can have our needs met, Jesus kind of batting down to the bottom of the list until we really get desperate. Why is it the vast majority of our praying is for healing? It's because the doctors have run out of options. Now we have no place to go to Jesus. 
All these people looking around saying, I try, I try to do the best I possibly can. I keep the laws scrupulously. I wash my food just right. When my family sins, I take an offering down to the temple. I'm careful to observe the, the scrupulous details of the Sabbath laws. I give alms to the poor. I do everything just right. Jesus comes on the scene. He begins to teach, and they're thinking, well, wait a minute. Why do I need you? Jesus comes on the scene. He begins to heal people. and they say, wait a minute. Why do I need you? Jesus comes on the scene. He begins to cast out demons. And the, the religious people are, are offended by these things. It's, it, they don't seem to recognize not only their own need, but the needs that other people have that Jesus is, is ministering to, reaching out. Why? Because there are sheep that are missing <laughs> that need help. And so despite all of these self-appointed gatekeepers, Jesus, by virtue of things that he says and by virtue of things that he does and by virtue of the people that he keeps the company of, tells folks God loves all kinds of sheep don't slam the gate on this kind of person that kind of person I'm here to befriend all remember Jesus even said to his disciples you know we're friends it's not just that you're my followers we're friends he told the people, I did, not, I did not come to be served, but to, or, or to be served, but to serve and to give my life as a ransom for many. I, I came to teach you and to help you, but I came especially to show you the love of your heavenly Father. Say John 3:16 with me. For God so loved the world that he did what? He gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God so loved the world, this shepherd in heaven so loved the world that he sent Jesus to be this good shepherd. And Jesus tells this parable that perhaps was confusing to his people. My guess is that it might be confusing to us. If you have a shepherd who has 100 sheep... <clears throat> First of all, that's a fairly good-sized flock for Jesus' day. And so he would have been not wealthy, but he would have been comfortable. So he has one sheep that is missing. May have wandered off down the path, got lost, made a right turn instead of a left turn, didn't come back. He may have fallen off the side of a cliff, being at the bottom of the canyon, a broken leg, or some sort of injury. It can be any number of reasons this, this shepherd's like, He's counting them up, and, and he's like, whoa, Emily's missing. Now, I don't know that that is the way it is today, but I understand in the Middle East in the first century, a shepherd had a close bond with his sheep. He knew their propensities. He knew their weaknesses. He knew what they liked and what they didn't like. He knew how close they would follow him and how distant they would stay. Emily's missing. And off he goes. What about the other 99 back here? What about making sure that there's fellowship meals for them? Making sure that there's Bible training for them? What about making sure that their needs are met? Well, right now, their needs are not as great as Emily's needs. Now, for us, we might think, a sheep is not that big of a deal, one. It's replaceable. I mean, certainly we can go down to Walmart and pick up another sheep, right? Or we can negotiate with uh, Naaman's over here, Naaman over here and maybe get one of his young lambs, pay him a little bit of money. And 99% of anything is typically, for, for us, I mean, 99% is, is good. I mean, if you have a collection of jewelry, gold jewelry, and it's 99% pure, that's pretty good. 
If you're a major league baseball player and you're batting .990, that's pretty good, amen? If you get a 99% on your history test, how many of you would be disappointed with that or would have been disappointed in the day? How many of you would have been disappointed with the 99? Okay, we need to pray for the six of you because you guys are perfectionists and God wants to deal with that idol in your heart. For most of us, 99% is awesome. If you make an investment and you get a 99% return on that, on that, you're going to be telling all your friends about how good that investment is. And yet for the shepherd, not acceptable. And so he grabs his staff, he grabs his robe, puts his sandals on, and off he goes. Start to party. You see, not only were people searching for God, but God is searching for people. When God called Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, and he said to him, first three verses, he said to him, I'm going to make of you, Abraham, a great nation. He had summoned him over from Iraq. He said, I want you to go to the land of Canaan, and I want you to set up a shop there, and I want you to live there, and this is going to be a land I'm going to give to you. And there, Genesis 12, he said, I'm going to make a great nation out of you. I'm going to give you tons of descendants. And Abraham's going, well, that's going to be a problem because I don't have one yet. Don't worry about that, Abraham. I'm going to give you a lot of descendants, so many you won't be able to count them just like the sands of the seashore. And it's going to be a great nation. And I'm going to impact the entire world through you. Entire world. Genesis 12, verse 3. And when I read that passage, it's tempting to say, well, wait a minute. The whole world is a mess. You see, almost in every daily news report, some sort of terrorist thing or other. Suicide bombing, stabbing, cars, vehicles on the streets of some European city or Canadian city. We have revolutions in the world or near revolutions. Venezuela is on the cusp of one. Do you know that by the end of the year, if analysts are correct, they will... Uh, the inflation rate will have hit in Venezuela 1 million percent. You have people streaming across the border of Venezuela, which used to be the gem of uh, South America, very, very prosperous. 15 years of socialism has destroyed it. People streaming across the border into Colombia, which has its own problems, shaky peace with the 50-year revolution We read about cancers, in some cases run amok. All kinds of diseases, some new that appear. We have AIDS epidemic around the world. Zika virus that surfaced here a number of years ago. A friend of mine, some of yours, just passed away last week from West Nile virus. We see poverty on a scale which would not have been believable in some cases 30 years ago, despite the fact that both our country and the world has spent money beyond belief on resolving poverty. Relationships are in disarray. Divorce is common. We've got this whole Me Too movement that, that puts on the front page how men have been dealing with women over the years in everything from education to politics to Hollywood to the church. And we ask God, when you said to Abraham that I will bless the entire world through you, what did you mean? Things are still a mess. There are still problems. Things don't seem to be coming back together. And there are still sheep 
scattered across the mountains and in the valleys and being dragged away by the fast rushing waters of the rivers. And if we're honest, we would say, I was once one of those sheep. I was once one of those who was in big trouble. Now let me stop here and say, if you were like I was, raised in a Christian home, do you actually think that? What I mean is, sometimes I talk to people who are raised in Christian home and we ask the question, so when did you become a Christian or how was it that you came to know Christ? And, and I'm not talking about not knowing the date. I don't know the date when I got saved. I know a six-month window, but I don't know the date. I'm talking about rather this idea, someone will say, well, I, I've always been a Christian. Or mom and dad were a Christian. And so, you know, I, I was a, I, I'm a Christian as well. And say, well, do you realize that there was once a time when you were being dragged down that river of destruction? When you did fall into the canyon of disaster? When you did wander away and you were lost? I said, no, not me. I never really did anything that bad. This morning after service, Somebody was uh, talking to me about my, my wrist, and he said, you need, to use, you need to use a certain kind of cream, he said. And I said, what is that? Well, it's one of these th creams that has marijuana in it, right? Cannabis. And I'm like, no, I don't do drugs. And, you know, when I was, when I was in high school, I don't see any of my high school friends here. They were in the early service. I mean, I didn't even smoke weed. I never experimented with drugs. I was, um, I was scared, to be honest with you. I was scared of where that might lead, even though I had a lot of friends that did drugs. I've never committed adultery. I've never committed a crime. And some of you are just like that. And you say... See, I never was being dragged down that river. See, I never did fall in that canyon. But listen to what God has to say about you and me. Ephesians chapter 2, beginning of verse 1. Once you were dead because of your disobedience and your many sins. Now you might feel like that excludes you. You used to live in sin just like the rest of the world. Like, well, he's just talking about the rest of the world means the bad people who were obeying the devil, the commander of the powers of the unseen world. He is the spirit at work in the hearts of those who refuse to obey God. Again, those people are, that's a different group out there. God's talking about sinners. True. Verse 3. Read it with me. All of us. Say it again. All of us. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires and inclinations of our sinful nature. Make no mistake, just because you didn't commit a crime against the legal authorities doesn't mean that you didn't commit a crime against God. For surely you did. Surely you do. All of us used to live that way, following the passionate desires or incl and inclinations of our sinful nature. By our very nature, we were subject to God's anger, just like everyone else just like everyone else. You see, we were sheep that were scattered abroad. Make no mistake about it. The Bible says that if God does not come looking for us, we'll wave him off every time. That our interest in him is ins naturally, instinctively, not that interested. And so when God sent Jesus to be the good shepherd. You were as just as needy as anybody else. I was just as needy as anybody else. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 10. John chapter 10, verse 11. He describes himself as the good shepherd. 
And then he goes on to say what it is that the shepherd's going to do for the sheep. It's the most important thing. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. Say that with me. The good shepherd sacrifices his life for the sheep. God sent Jesus on a mission to search us out and rescue us from ourselves. And it's not just this little, it's not just this group of refined people that think they don't need a doctor who kind of have most things together. I need a little help from God from this and maybe from this, but in general, I have it together. Make no mistake about it. You and I were part of the messed up group. When Jesus would talk to the Jewish folks of his day, they really thought that God was pretty much exclusively interested in them. But listen to what Jesus says in the same passage, verse 16. <clears throat> a Jewish voice, or a Jewish <laughs> voice, a Jewish ear hearing this, I'm sure went, <gasps> because he says, I have other sheep too <clears throat> that are not in the sheep fold. I have other sheep too that are not in this sheepfold. I must bring them also. They will listen to my voice and there will be there will be one flock with one shepherd. You Jewish people, you, you gotta understand, God's saying he's not just interested in you. He's got a lot more people that he's interested in because he's a good shepherd of all people. He's going to go and search. He's going to find those in need. And he's going to use you and you and you and you and you and you to do it. Because the Bible says that when we come to faith in Christ, the Holy Spirit comes into our lives. And the Bible says that that is essentially Jesus in your life. 2 Corinthians 3, 17 and 18 is one of the places it mentions that. That Jesus Christ is now living in you and he is wanting to live his life out through you instead of you living your life out through you. He's wanting to live his life out through me rather than Keith's life out through me. But isn't it true that we can get in the way and we find ourselves being these kind of self-appointed gatekeepers by virtue of the things that we do and the things that we don't do. The things that we say and the things that we don't say. The people we spend time with and the people that we refuse to spend time with. That we essentially cut Jesus off from these people. And so like, we're like the, the Pharisees say, do you know what kind of person that is? Shouldn't let her touch you. Shoo, have the children get away. Send that woman away. You and I are taking Jesus to the world, or we're not taking Jesus to the world. You and I are taking the grace that has been given to us in Christ and sending that grace along to other people for God to do whatever it is he wants to do in them, or we're not. I want to close this morning by sharing a story about how you as a congregation have done that, have shown Jesus to two people. So if you're relatively new to the church, you may not know this story. <clears throat> about 10 years ago, uh, as leaders, we're, we're looking at our financial situation. Something's not right. We'd actually um, gone into a... During, those, um, during that time period, we actually put a spending freeze on the ministry team leaders to say, you know, we're not going to spend money on anything that's not kind of essential. And as we, are, as we seem to be getting closer and closer to the problem on the books, we realize that there's a person involved. And finally the day came when Beth confessed that she had been stealing money from the church over a period of three years. She didn't know how much. She hadn't kept track of it. When we said we thought we might be looking for $30,000, she said, oh, no, it's not that much, maybe ten. It turned out that it was probably around $100,000. 
We only could come up, best we could come up with records-wise was about $88,000. We, of course, turned the case over to the authorities and had some very difficult conversations with Beth. And one of the things that we were hoping could happen is that she would not go to prison and that we could try to get the money back, pay restitution. Uh, We received about a third of the money through insurance and the rest was, of course, outstanding. And the detective we were working with said, well, um, pretty much everybody that does this intends to pay it back, but they never do. And I said, well, our, our desire is that she not be sent to prison. Uh, now, a little interesting side note of the story. At the time uh, that this all came to the surface, Beth, who had been married previously, um, was engaged to be married again. She was just about three months away from her wedding. And we felt that it should be her job to tell her fiance what happened. And we really pressed her to do that. But she chose not to. And so he married her and a month after they got married, he found out what she had done. And I remember him calling, his name was Todd. I remember him calling me and saying, Pastor Keith, he said, I, 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 and he's not a believer. He said, I can't, I, I just can't wrap my head around this. He said, the, the deception, the lying, I just. And he and I and he and Pastor Charlie had many conversations in the next month or so. The day came for sentencing. And uh, Pastor Charlie and I were in the courtroom. And the judge wasn't very kind to her. I realize that's not his job, but he pointed his finger at her. He said, if it were up to me, he said, you'd be going to prison. That's where you belong. But he pointed at Charlie and I said, but these men have requested that not happen. And so he said, you're not going to go to prison. You're going to be on probation for, I don't know how long it was, might have been 15 years because she's still on probation. And this was about 10 years ago. He said, but you're going to pay back every penny, starting with a retirement fund you have. She had a retirement fund of about $8,000. He said, that's going to go to the church. And he said, the money that you've proposed paying the church uh, per month, I'm going to double that until you have every penny paid off. And then when you pay that off, you're going to start paying off the insurance companies. And when you pay that off, you're going to pay off the court costs. And so court was adjourned. Uh, We said our goodbyes to Beth and Todd, and Charlie and I were coming back to the office, and I said, Charlie, do you think that our church, that we have a good understanding of what grace is? And he thought for a while. He said, I think so. He said, I think we understand at least well that it's a gift we've been given. What I'm not sure about is that we understand well that this gift that we were given came at a price to someone. And I said, what about if we would do this? What about if we would invite the church to give money towards a fund that ultimately we give to Beth as part of her repayment to us? So you can't pay it all back, in essence. We want to help you pay it all back. And thereby both teach ourselves a little bit more about grace because there's going to be a cost involved to us to give this to her. And so we talked about it with the elders and uh, we decided to do that. And over the next uh, several months, we raised almost $4,000. And the plan was when she got to the, if she ever got to the end of paying off the church, Um, that we would give her the final payment, essentially. So we didn't tell them until several months before the final payment was to come in. And Charlie was talking on the phone with Todd one day, and he said, look, I don't want you to tell tell Beth this. I want you to know that we have collected X amount of dollars, and 
We want to give that to Beth to be her final payment to the church. It was quiet on the other end of the phone. And Todd said, I don't, I don't understand that. He said, I'm not a religious person. And he said, I, I just don't understand that. About six years ago, on a Thanksgiving Eve, at the building, our old auditorium across the road, Todd and Beth came. And they stood in front of that crowded auditorium. And Beth asked for our forgiveness. And we had the opportunity as a congregation to gather around them and pray with them, express our love to them, to pass along the grace that we'd been given. Two days ago, I got a phone call. And... uh, Secretary said, Todd Martin's on the phone. I'm like, I don't know who that is. Must be a salesman. I don't want to talk to him. Turned out to be Todd Martin, as in Beth's husband. And he said, Pastor Keith, I don't know if you remember me. And I'm so, I said, well, of course I remember you. <laughs> I mean, cut me a break. Martin is a common Lancaster name. And he said, I just wanted you to know. He said, um, yesterday, Beth paid the final dollar she owes anybody. Still in probation, but she's paid every cent back that she stole. He said, I've been pretty firm with her. Um, but he said, it's been hard. When you're a convicted felon, it's tough to get a job. Tough to keep a job. He said she's an EMT now, but she had to go to Harrisburg, have a special meeting with officials there because she was a convicted felon in order to get her license or whatever you call it as an EMT. He said, I just thought you you and the congregation would like to know. And he said, "Um, I want to say all over again, he said, what you did as a congregation in giving Beth money for a debt that she owed. He said, if that didn't affect anybody else, he said, it affected me. He said, I'm a more forgiving person. I'm a more compassionate person. He said, Beth and I both now volunteer with the ambulance crew in our town. So she runs EMT, another uh, city. And he said, I don't know if it affected anybody else. I just know it affected me. And pray for Todd. He's not a believer yet. He thinks in terms of good works. And he said, one, he said we have a grandchild now in Lancaster County. He said, and uh, we get down there sometimes. He said, one of these Sundays, he said, we're going to come to Keystone. And I thought you should know. Todd might be, not be there yet. We don't know about Beth. We pressed her pretty hard after all, after all this came to light. Beth, you know, you sure you know the Lord. How can you go three years and not be convicted by the Spirit of God of your guilt and sin, not repent? And we just pressed in. She said, I think I'm saved. And so it's between her and the Lord, obviously. Todd's not there yet. But who knows? But what $3,800 or whatever it was, huge manifestation of God's grace in our lives has this kind of effect in somebody else's life. One lost sheep. Is it worth it? And you think about the people that you're going to be around this week or not around. Maybe there are people that you ruled out of your associations because of what they did or what they're doing or who they are. You think about the kinds of conversations that you're going to have with them or the kinds of conversations that you could have with them. Will you be the one who swings wide the gate so that the Jesus in your life can connect with the people out here? The people who might not run to us because, frankly, we're we're kind of unapproachable 
Isn't it terrible that in Jesus' day, all of these people are running to Jesus. They, they can't keep away. They're, they're instinctively drawn to him. And yet in our day, the survey says that when the word evangelical is asked of unbelievers, what do you think of when you think of an evangelical Christian? You, they think meanness, harshness, angry. Are we going to be gatekeepers and keep the gate closed or open up the gate by what we say and how we say it and what we don't say and who we hang around with and who we don't hang around with and and the gestures of warmth and hope and invitation or the cold gestures who among us is going to fling open that gate so that those people can connect with Jesus in us. Who? Let's pray together. Father, thank you for being the good shepherd who sent the good shepherd. Because we were lost. Some of us were stranded on a mountaintop and we had no idea how to get down. Some of us were in a canyon that had no path to get out. The only way was up. Some of us being dragged down that river by hurricane-like currents. And it looked only like we were either going to drown or going to go over a waterfall and die. We, we were in the desert. There was no more food. There was no more water. And along comes a shepherd who cared enough to seek us out and to keep seeking us out and to keep seeking us out until you found us. May we repeat that cycle in our lives and fling wide the gate so that the good shepherd can be reached by the people in our spheres for your glory and their good. Amen. Amen.